Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, yeah, just quickly looked at uh, their board of directors here. I'm seeing, uh, let's see, Michael Chertoff, you know, of course, famous for being in the Bush administration, uh, Bush W administration. I think he was a trilateral commission member. I think he runs his own, one of his own uh, organizations too. But it's quite the list here. Um, Jane Harmon, um, Francis Fukuyama uh, is on the uh, – Board of Directors of Freedom House. Uh, yeah, Freedom House had existed since the 1940s, if I remember correctly, but I think it was repurposed, though, uh, for some of these agendas around, like, the late 80s, um, early 90s, because it's one of the big groups, along with the National Endowment and uh, the Open Societies Foundation of George Soros, that uh, whenever there's a color revolution, I mean, these those three are almost always at the forefront of it in some capacity or other. I had noticed that. And uh, the National Endowment for Democracy, I forget now what the other organizations are called. I know they have the Democratic, I remember they have um, the National Democratic Institute and the International Republican Institute, if I remember correctly. But then they have one that's set up for private business and one that's set up for unions so they've got all their bases covered <laughs> and you know in in of course people have no idea what they're really doing but uh it's it's pretty ingenious what they that they came up with under the uh you know this this project of global democracy or whatever <laughs> you know you kind of want to call it that they kind of popped up there in i guess 83 
Yeah, and it's, you know, and that's kind of another thing that's important to emphasize, too, because this stuff is overwhelmingly associated with the Democrats. Uh, but really, in the early years, it was almost all carried out by Republican administrations. Uh, I think with the exception of Serbia, that was, and that was also kind of the first really a successful color revolution around 2000, right? Maybe, maybe in 1999, 2000, thereabouts. But yeah, um, up to that point, though, that was one of the only really big ones that had been done uh, under a Democratic presidency, in this case, obviously, Bill Clinton. But, I mean, it's be, it would become so closely associated with the Obama administration, but a lot of the major uh, color revolutions that sort of... Um, Establish the ideology like the Rose Revolution or the Orange Revolution at all unfolded under Bush too, and of course this kind of goes back to when his uh, dad was the vice president during the Reagan years, and then of course the first maybe kind of quasi uh, color revolution potentially was Tiananmen Square, which happened uh, during Bush one's presidency. So that's certainly a really interesting component to this that I don't think that a lot of people really realize. And again, I'm not trying to like put this, you know, try to argue with this is really like a Republican thing. It's just more that um, it transcends the two political parties here. They both have uh, used the means of the color revolution. So it's, it's a bit disingenuous to overwhelmingly associated with the Democrats because um, it has a long history of being used by uh, Republican regimes as well. Yeah, I noticed that the, the International Republican Institute arm of NED was headed up by McCain for years and years. Yes. <laughs> so that tells you all you need to know there. I think Graham, Lindsey Graham is well, now. Also, I think that's the one that is uh, guy David J. Kramer who was a big McCain protege, um, was a part of. Kramer, of course, later ended up with, I think, the National Endowment for Democracy. And I think he also headed Freedom House for a time. And then, yeah, he ended up, I think, at the uh, National Republican Institute. But Kramer's a, an interesting guy. He was actually um, the one who leaked the Steele dossier originally after Fusion GPS had given it to him supposedly so he could turn it over to McCain, but then he went to um, the press with it. So, yeah, yeah, there's... Um, uh, when you look at Russiagate, there are some very interesting elements of a color revolution in that, as there are also are in January 6th as well. Mm, yeah, I can see that totally. I'm looking here at the uh, National Democratic Institute, and their longtime chairman or chairwoman was uh, Victoria, or is it Victoria Albright, or what was her first name? Oh, uh, Madeline Mad Albright. Madeline Albright, yes. And I know she had several uh, organizations that she fronted as well, and I think she belonged to like pretty much every <laughs> one of these elitist NGOs there. Uh, it says... Thomas A. Daschle, Stacey Abrams, Howard Dean, Michael McFall, Chris Dodd, and Donna Brazil are also in that particular one. And Romney is also in the International Republican Institute. I didn't recognize the other names in the International Republican Institute, so they're probably up-and-comers. Yeah, I mean, they definitely... Um, it's a big spot for grooming people. That's something that I've noticed. Um, 
you know, typically these guys sort of go through the process of working in the um, State Department. I think it's like specifically the Assistant Secretary of State for, um, was it Labor, Human Resources or something like that. That's kind of like the crucial post that they use as a bit of a grooming um, spot uh, for people who eventually end up doing this kind of work. Uh, but in but so to get back to kind of the evolution of the color revolution here and how it became more viable, I think there were two factors in this because, like I said, that was comparatively rare until around 1999, 2000. And the first, I think, just simply had to do with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the spread of democracy across the globe. I mean, now it kind of became an expectation that you had to have elections all across the globe. I mean, this was kind of another thing uh, where the environment and the Cold War uh, meant that most countries that fell behind the Iron Curtain really didn't have to bother with any pretext of holding democratic elections or anything of that nature. So that's one aspect of it. So now everybody is uh, doing the elections and that... uh, obviously provides a certain amount of ability to get in there and intervene. But even then, there were only so many. And I think the really decisive factor to this was the rise of the Internet. It was just such a big part of all of the color revolutions. I mean, to some extent with the Serbian one, but especially with the Rose Revolution, with the Orange Revolution, this is something that almost everybody emphasizes, is that none of this would have been possible without the Internet. And then it really went into overdrive. And this is why I think that there is that such a close connection with the Obama era because of the rise of social media. Because, I mean, this just opened up a whirlwind of possibilities with what you could do with this because again you know you you'd already kind of come up with these concepts of using this kind of performance art and street theater and stuff like that to where you could uh, destabilize you know cities states whatever I mean, this has been around for a long time but now with social media you know you can come up with flash mobs with all this other kind of stuff and suddenly mobilize people the way that was not capable of doing, you know, even five, six years earlier. And that would have major repercussions all across the world. I mean, this was really at the forefront of what made the Arab Springs possible, of what later made Occupy Wall Street and all this other kind of stuff possible. So I think that this was another reason, too, why the color revolution method became uh more and more popular amongst the national security state at the end of the 20th century going into the 21st century is, frankly, the advances in technology now made it capable of essentially weaponizing democracy to an extent that just would not have been possible during the Cold War. So it was kind of a perfect storm in a lot of ways. Yeah, you can actually, you know, foment an uprising or at least plant the seeds of one, you know, just on the Internet. So it's a pretty amazing, you know, it's like they say, it's a double-edged sword. Of course, you can use it for good or for bad. Uh, But, yeah, you're right. That's that makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's kind of a great irony, but I mean, it really was, I think, the rise of the internet that started to make the kind of geopolitical schemes of people like Lansdale or uh, you know, Jim Channon or Michael Aquino actually viable, because now, you know, you had such a pervasive way of influencing people psychologically, culturally, politically, even spiritually through the internet and later through social media as an extension of it. So, I mean, it was certainly a, a major game changer. But then again, I mean, Lansdale was involved with uh, the ARPANET stuff all the way back at its inception in the early 60s. So who knows? I mean, maybe he uh, kind of had an inkling that uh, at some point in time, all the stuff with the computers would eventually make it uh, possible to largely forego bullets in terms of regime change. You do it all through the uh, different methods of psychological warfare. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, there's some quotes by Zbigniew Brzezinski. I forget which book, if it was uh, The Grand Chessboard or uh, Between Two Ages, uh, but it would have been the one probably that came out 20 years before the internet. And I know he had some quotes in there that really sounded, you know, of course he didn't call it the internet, but he just said the, I think he said something like the technological capabilities, uh, you know, Yeah, I think it's between two ages is what you're thinking of. Yeah. It, it sounded like, or at least to me, uh, I took it as he maybe had the inside scoop on where things were headed. So it could be kind of a similar circumstance. Yeah, I mean, I think Brzezinski was probably, um, I mean, a bigger part of this than a lot of people realize. I mean, I haven't had the the chance to really look into the connections in this regard as much as I would like, but Brzezinski was such a big, well, not a huge, but he was involved in setting up um, uh, the Victims for Communism Memorial Foundation in the aftermath of the Cold War, along with... Um, a lot of people who would have typically been associated with more of like the far right, i.e. Lebdo Briansky, who uh, was for years the the major advocate for the OUNB, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the Banderite faction in the United States. Uh, his daughter, Paula Dobriansky, was a member of the Project for New American Century. She was in the Bush to White House. She's still very uh, closely connected with the VOC and the captive nations. And then you have people like Lee Edwards and uh, Edwin Fulner of the Heritage Foundation, who also helped set up the VOC. But VOC, uh, it's very closely tied to captive nations, which is something Dobriansky had established back in the late 50s. And since um, 1959, I think uh, the third week of July has always been set aside for Captive Nations Week. And the BOC sponsors uh, the Captive Nations Summit in D.C. every year. And I bring this up because, you know, in the aftermath of the Cold War, the captive nations were basically defined as all of the countries that were under, you know, authoritarian regimes, quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. So it's basically a litany of just all of the countries that were trying to format regime change in. I mean, you have like, you know, pretty much annual representatives from Cuba, from the Wigras, and um, uh, 
was it Jiqing province in China, which is, uh, you know, the major, the Uyghurs are the major um, Islamic populace within the PRC and have been targeted frequently to try and cause instability in China. Of course, the Ukrainians have always had a huge presence in this. And just in general, a lot of the uh, different ethnicities from the former Soviet Union, from a lot of the Stan countries in Central Asia, all that other kind of stuff. And there's close overlap between you know this group between groups like the atlantic council as well in addition to the heritage foundation but also with freedom house with the national endowment for democracy i mean i know just looking through the background of a lot of the speakers uh at the one that i just attended from this uh the 2023 conference i mean almost all of these people had some kind of link to uh, the national endowment or freedom house or one of these other kinds of organizations so i can't help but feel that brzezinski was probably more significant in establishing this network than a lot of people realize even though he kept his distance from it and i also suspect he was probably a big part of really bringing soros into this and the scale that he's been involved in as well um again this isn't you know something that i can conclusively prove at this point it's just you know based on some of the connections that i've seen it's an avenue of research that i'm hoping to dig more into yeah but no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, and uh, Ms. Paula Dobriansky, here it says she is actually on the board of Freedom House right now, and she was formerly on the board of NED, so uh, yeah, still going strong. And, and she was, um, the guy I was just talking about, David J. Kramer, um, who was big guy for McCain, he was actually a protege of hers in the Bush II uh, administration. He was her personal assistant, if I remember correctly, when she was um, working in the State Department. So yeah, I mean, it's just, it's the whole circle with these people is very, very incestuous, to put it mildly. Yeah, it really is. It, it kind of, um, it's a place for them, it's, it's a way for them to kind of hide in the background and look as if they're doing something almost philanthropic or that kind of actually is what they're trying to say they're doing in a lot of certain, you know, a lot of situations. But uh, it seems like they're really uh, a lot of probably uh, backroom deals. And it seems like everything always kind of, uh, if it's not about power and imperialism, it's about trade and about, uh, you know, about money. I mean, you know, that's what a lot of this stuff is about, unfortunately. But uh, it, it provides a perfect smokescreen, I guess is what I'm trying to say, for a lot of these people, a lot of these this cronyism. Well, I mean, yeah, and it's also just, an, you know, again, it's an insidious nature to try to bring about regime change in countries because you just, you point to these, you know, different agencies and it's like, well, well they're just trying to spread democracy. How can you be against the spread of democracy? I mean, are you a Nazi or something? <laughs> exactly. It's the perfect... It's the perfect thing. I, I noticed um, when I've done the shows about Ned, it's been a couple of years ago, but like I watched these videos and there was one with Pelosi who visited Ned. There was one with um, Hillary. Uh, there was a couple with McCain who visited. Uh, there was one with Liz Cheney and she said she actually interned at Ned in, in uh, college. But the one with Pelosi was interesting because they were handing out these awards 
I think they called them the Goddess of Democracy Awards, and they were a very large statue of a female figure. So, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, when I was at Captive Nations, Paula Dobriansky herself actually invoked uh, Lady Liberty, Liberty, the Goddess of Democracy, (laughs) as uh, looking over the proceedings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's cute, right? Um, They're actually calling upon Columbia, which is the true patron deity of these United States and specifically of uh, Washington, D.C., hence the reason why it's called District of Columbus. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. It's this uh, syncretic goddess um, kind of comprised of different aspects of uh, Sibylle, Pallas Athenia, and uh, Diana kind of rolled into one. Of course, you know, you uh, have the different personifications of it, the French have their own kind of version with uh, Mary Arena or something like that. Of course, that was sort of the inspiration behind the Statue of Liberty, where we were uh, crafting our particular shrine to uh, this entity with the French in that regard. And then, yeah, there's obviously the Columbia persona. There's like Liberty persona. But yeah, it's... It's just kind of remarkable how this stuff turns up. Because, again, you know, you would think that for a group like the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, right, it's this really square, mostly Republican sect with ties to the Christian right. And you go into their museum and you gaze up those marble stair steps that lead up into um, the inner sanctum where, like, um, all the good business happens and... Right there is the statue of Lady Liberty gazing down upon you. (laughs) Oh, it's wild. It's wild. Yeah, one thing I wanted to ask, too, uh, well, actually, I wanted to comment on uh, something you said about Soros, uh, you know, the open society. You know, I know that open society, uh, I guess a lot of people haven't looked into it. I'm sure you know this very well. But uh, they basically fund other organizations, so... A lot of times those other organizations will go on to fund even other organizations. So it kind of blurs the lines and kind of takes the spotlight off of Soros and the open societies. But it is pretty wild how uh, you always find either the open society or one of the organizations they're funding along with these other groups. And that's no matter if you have a democratic organization. administration in the White House or a Republican administration. So, you know, kind of see that shadow, if you want to call it shadow government. I mean, it's kind of like that, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, again, it's just sort of like, I think, the height of absurdity when you look at something like the situation in Ukraine going back to the Orange Revolution, which was something that uh, the Open Society Foundation was very active in. And this is what really enabled the Banderites to establish a major presence in the Ukrainian government. I mean, the guy, Viktor Yushchenko, who ended up as Ukraine's president um, after the Orange Revolution, was married, is still is married to a woman named uh, Katriana Yushchenko, I believe, who is actually an American. She uh, was born and grew up in Chicago. It just so happens that her teacher and mentor at Georgetown was Lev Dobriansky, was daddy. Again, another major OUNB figure. So, 
you know, because this is kind of the proverbial circle joke here. But again, okay, so the OUNB is, it's fascist to the core. I mean, this is an outfit that during the Second World War, even as the Red Army was making headways left and right and they were running out of bullets, it's like they would still find the time to go into villages and liquidate all the Jews with farming tools, okay? <laughs> like, this is the OUNB we're talking about here. And this is the group that Soros is trying to put back in power, the faction that Soros is trying to put back in power in Ukraine during this era. So, you know, you know I mean, I'm, you know, go ahead. No, that really is uh, interesting that you said that because uh, I've done the series on basically Zionism and it kind of led to other connected things. And I ended up doing like 10 shows on it because I wanted to do it in a way that uh, wasn't anti-Semitic, but was historic. Uh, and uh, so I've, I've, it kind of led me down many, many rabbit holes. But um, so ever since I started doing those shows, I always look at these uh, people in these organizations or at least the, the higher ups. And I've noticed a kind of, um, a fairly large percentage of Jewish people, like in um, Ned, for instance, you know, you had uh, Carl Gershom, who I guess who's kind of the co-founder with a, a guy named Alan Weinstein or Weinstein. Uh, Elliot, Elliot Abrams uh, was in there for a while. He was, the, I think, the chief. Uh, and he was, um, of course, with PNAC and CFR and Trump administration. I think Trump actually uh, appointed him to head up the uh, Venezuela coup, which didn't actually happen, as, as we know. Uh, but Victoria Newland, um, Ann Applebaum, the author, uh, Stuart Applebaum, who I, I assume is related to her, uh, Daniel Freed, uh, Je Jessica Adelman. So a lot of these uh, people on the board of directors, at least of Ned, and then I see a few as well on uh, Freedom House are uh, Jewish. And, you know, it's kind of strange to me that uh, they would work work with some of these groups and some of the people that they actually help get into power, you'd think they wouldn't want them into power. Yeah. I mean, it's, <clears throat> I think, I mean, a lot of it is just sort of like expediency. Uh, certainly, you know, when it comes to Israel, I mean, they found themselves collaborating with a lot of strange bedfellows over the years to put it mildly. Um, but I mean, I think that to some extent, as the, you know, kind of quote unquote liberal establishment became more and more uh, disillusioned with Israel, because I mean, it is effectively an apartheid state, if we're being perfectly honest, uh, the Israeli government itself had to increasingly look to for support from far right regimes. I mean, a fine example of that really was the close relationship that they had with apartheid South Africa by the 1980s. And, you know, this went into some very sensitive military research uh, with the chemical biological warfare programs, the nuclear programs, and all this other kind of stuff that both countries uh, were sponsoring at the time. Uh, and again, I mean, the you know, Mossad, I mean, at one point was even using Otto Scorzini as an asset. So there you go. I mean, <laughs> you'd think he would be about the last person that they would really want, but, um, right. You know. Yeah. One thing I came across is, uh, that, uh, Vladimir Jabotinsky, uh, you know, was kind of probably the biggest hero of Israel these days. Uh, you know, he, he was a huge fan of Mussolini and, um, 
they actually, uh, some of his troops, some of uh, Jabotinsky's troops actually trained uh, at one of uh, his bases over there in Italy, and they would call Jabotinsky the uh, little Mussolini or the Jewish Mussolini. So, you know, you have that fascist uh, kind of um, fascination, I guess, you know, because you had the socialist Zionists, but then Jabotinsky kind of brought in this idea of uh, more forceful kind of fascist, a fascist type of Zionism. And uh, he's one of the biggest heroes there. So I think that says a lot. <laughs> oh, and, and, you know, too, I'll just say quickly, too, I had read that uh, Jabotinsky's father was secretary uh, to, uh, or excuse me, no, um, not Jabotinsky's father. Netanyahu's father was a secretary to Jabotinsky. So uh, that was kind of an interesting connection as well. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see that, though, given the direction that he steered the country in over the years. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, I mean, I just think when you really kind of get down to it, I mean, fascism isn't necessarily anti-Semitic. Nazism is. Right. But Nazism and fascism are... I mean, Nazism is an outgrowth of fascism, but fascism is actually a much more... Um, frankly, diverse ideology than I think a lot of people give it credit for. I mean, there's all kinds of different branches of it. Obviously, you have Nazism, but I mean, you could also point to clerical fascism and a lot of other varieties as well. Uh, it's certainly proved to be very adaptable, that is for certain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of these a lot of these uh, subjects and these belief systems are so much more complicated, but, you know... <laughs> We're led to believe everything is so simple and in black and white. And, you know, if they keep us thinking that, then they, we're so easily fooled because people will never never do their own research and kind of delve deeper and find the truth. Certainly. And, you know, there's one final point, too, I can make here uh, about this whole concept of the color revolutions, which I think is really important. And it's just the fact that... In the grand scheme of things, it's basically been used as a means of discrediting democracy. Uh, Because when you really look around the world now at the countries that are outside the sphere of of U.S. influence, I mean, places like China, like Russia, like Iran, you know, I mean, let's not kid ourselves, they are basically authoritarian governments, But in a lot of ways, you know, we've created this environment where that's almost the only way that a country can exist outside the U.S. sphere of influence. If it attempts to have open democracy, uh, we have a well-practiced method now of destabilizing the country through these democratic institutions. And I think that as an end result of this, outside of the West, this is badly discredited democracy in much of the developing world. And that's a terrible aspect because, I mean, many uh, regions, you know, were subjected to authoritarian regimes for so many years because of colonialism and then later the Iron Curtain and all this other stuff, capitalist exploitation and so on. And now, um, you know, kind of going into the quote-unquote end of history when in theory... Uh, democracy and open elections are finally going to become widespread uh, instead of trying to 
provide them with some kind of legitimacy. As I said before, the United States effectively tried to weaponize them and use them as another tool uh, in the toolbox of low-intensity conflict. And this is just, it's horrendous and sickening on so many levels. And I think that for a lot of people, it has left the question of whether democracy is even viable uh, in the era with the technologies that we have now with social media and that kind of thing. And it's a scary proposition. I mean, I think that it's made uh, those the world and, I mean, a lot of Western governments far more susceptible to authoritarian regimes, to demagogues and things like that than uh, at any other time in recent history. So I especially with the situation that we're currently in, probably the fact that we're staring down major economic downturn. It's, you know, it's a very unsettling into the future that we're going towards. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's a great point. Uh, what you said about really these other countries, the only way they can escape, you know, the kind of Western hold that, uh, you know, that is so popular uh, you know, because if you don't play ball, if you don't open up your economy, if you don't let the, the IMF and the World Bank in and those kinds of things, uh, you're going to get a regime change if you're lucky. If, you know, either that or you're going to get uh, uh, some freedom bombs coming over into your country. And it's really a shame. And, all, you know, a lot of Americans don't realize that a lot of these other countries know that our idea, or at least our government's idea, I call it GovCorp, the governments and their cronies, idea of democracy is not real democracy. So it's, uh, yeah, it, you're right. It's very scary times and it's, you know, what's next, you know? it's. Not, I don't think it's going to be a pure form of uh, dem democracy or a republic or anything like that. I think we're going to get this weird conglomeration of, uh, I don't know, maybe... <laughs> technocracy and public-private partnership governance or something like that. Well, it's especially unsettling with these methods now more or less being openly, I think, applied to the United States in the last couple of elections. I mean, with, you know, Russia Gate, with the January 6th operation, you know, you're created a situation now where democracy has also been discredited in the eyes of a lot of Democrats and Republicans alike. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think yeah. almost everybody now even questions, I think, whether or not elections are legitimate in the country, mm -hmm. you know, pretty validly. I mean, in fairness, but still it's it's just become so sickening. I mean what is being done just with the elections in this country and how it is, frankly, predisposing people to authoritarianism at home. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, this is an issue with both the left and the right. I mean, gosh, what was it? Something like 30% of uh, the anti-Trump uh, uh, people out there said that violence might be necessary to uh, prevent Trump coming to power or something to that effect. And obviously, I mean, it's just as bad on the right, you know. It's just... Yeah. It's really scary, I mean, where we're headed with this, and I mean, whether the nation can even survive uh, with the current course that it's on. Mm -hmm. It really is. <clears throat> well, this has been an awesome show. I thank you so much for coming on, man. This has been a blast, and, you know, I hope to talk to you again in the future. Um, 
would you care to uh, kind of tell us how we can find your books and your uh, your podcast website? Anything you want to talk about? Oh, sure. Well, obviously, I'm the longtime creator of the uh, Visa blog. Unfortunately, I'm not really able to uh, update it anymore, but it's still a wonderful repository of information. I did quite a few long-form series there uh, that are you know, about as long as I mean a book would be, so definitely consider checking out some of that stuff. Um, I am the host of the Farm Podcast, uh, which you can find on Apple and Spotify under the Farm Podcast, Mach 2, M-A-C-H-I-I. Uh, there's a little bit of a, well, we won't get into that. But um, anyway, got a weekly show out for free for everyone. And then there's also the Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows uh, per month on the lower tier. On the upper tier, you get that and uh, all kinds of other special reports, long-form essays, updates on the investigations that I'm doing, all kinds of crazy stuff. Heck, I just uh, published, uh, I'm getting ready to publish uh, one of my first short stories on there. So you get all kinds of interesting goodies. And uh, finally, I am the author of Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, uh, along with Frank Zero, as well as by myself, uh, Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. And I have another book that will hopefully be out by October, uh, The Art, The Secret History of Psy War, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality. Very excited with that one. So, and there might even be another work in progress uh, towards the end of the year, so who knows. But uh, regardless, I definitely stay busy uh, in between the Patreon and uh, working on the books and just in general doing the weekly shows. Uh, I have a lot of output out there, so definitely check it out. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Check him out. I, I looked at his Patreon today, and I was like, wow, this one is definitely worth checking out and subscribing to one of his tiers. You know, because I don't put out as much stuff as I would like to on my Patreon at all, but he does, and his is absolutely worth it. There's a lot of extra stuff on there. So I'll put all your links in my show notes. And again, man, I want to thank you so much for coming on, and I will talk oh, to you. Absolutely, and thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. And just hang tight, and uh, we'll talk after the show. All right, my friends, this brings us to another close of another edition of the Oddcast, featuring me, your odd man, out. And as always, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me and my guest, Recluse. And thank you once again, Recluse, for coming on. And I urge you guys to check out his content, his podcast, The Farm, as well as his Vise Up blog. And I will have all those links in my show notes. You can check out the links to his books as well. He's got two fantastic books and working on another one as we speak. So please check out his stuff. Now, I want to thank my patrons. I want to thank KF. I want to thank Cole. I want to thank Ashley. I want to thank that crazy bread man for being a covert co-conspirator. I want to thank Aaron. I want to thank Ruckus for being a producer of the show. Check out the Oddcast episode with Ruckus, and you can find his content on alternatecurrentradio.com or on tntradio.live. Thank you, No Evil Shall I Fear, for being a producer of the show. No evil shall I fear. He asked that maybe I would drop a link for you guys. So in my show notes, you're going to find a link to a band on Spotify called Total Order. And their album is called Illusionary. So check that out in the show notes as well. I also want to thank Mark from Housatonic Live. Please check out all of Mark's work as well. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill, for being a producer of the show. 
Thank you, John Brisson. Get over there and check out We've Read the Documents on Rumble. And check out We've Read the Documents on Twitter. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you to Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. You can find Jack's content on all your fine podcasting platforms, as well as on YouTube. Last but not least, I want to thank my podcasting family at AlternateCurrentRadio.com. Get on over there and check out all the fine talk and music shows as well. And thank you to FringeRadioNetwork.com as well for carrying the Oddcast and many other podcasts. Now, on a sadder note, we at Alternate Current Radio had one of our colleagues suddenly pass away in a freak accident. And we've all been really heartbroken. I wasn't as close to him as some of the other guys, but I tell you, when you first meet someone and you just know immediately that they're an awesome person and that if you live near them, you would hang out with them, you'd have a beer with them, call them up with song ideas or what have you. So I knew the minute I met this guy, and I've never met him personally, but online we did many boiler room shows together. Chopper, he was our resident gearhead and just an all-around funny guy. And being a gearhead, you'd think that this guy maybe didn't know a lot about politics and social issues, but that could not be farther from the truth in his case. He really saw through the political BS, and he had a really good mind for that kind of stuff. And he had a real special way of explaining his ideas, too. So shout out to Chopper, man. You are going to be missed. And uh, I know that you're racing around that raceway in the sky somewhere and uh, we miss you man and we'll be thinking about you for a very long time so god bless chopper's family and all of his loved ones that being said guys cheers and blessings and remember their order is not our order see you guys Yeah, Brad.